Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 263 of the Speaking Club podcast. Today I'm going to open the show with a quote that's often attributed to Dr. Zeus, but it was actually originally written in German by Ludwig Jakabowski. Nicht weinen, weil sie vorüber, lachen, weil sie gewesen. Do not cry because they are past. Smile because they once were. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So... If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Well, hello there. I hope you're having a fantastic week. My week has been full of personal discoveries, dancing and remembering to practice detachment. I'm pretty sure that I've talked about detachment before on the show and it comes up a lot in my life and also in the lives of the clients I coach. And it comes up because basically when we want something but attach importance and make getting that thing a condition of our own happiness and success, it creates a pressure that actually diminishes our power, performance and ability to actually bring about the thing we want. And when I look back, especially when I was starting out in business and began marketing to get clients, I know that I had attachment to the outcome of sales conversations. I made whether the person decided to work with me or not mean something about me and the ultimate success of my business. And when you add that sort of pressure to those conversations or pitches or talks, it can generate an air of desperation and an energy associated with that that really puts people off. And the same thing happened when I was trying to move to where I live now. I was attached to how that move should happen. And after five property purchases fell through, I said, right, that's it. Let's just let go, take some time out and buy a caravan and go around the country. Maybe reconsider what we're looking for and then come back to it. And as soon as we did that... The perfect property came up, better than all the ones that had fallen through and in our dream location. And on top of that, everything went really smoothly. But it's a careful balancing act of caring, but not caring about outcomes. If you want to find out more about all this stuff, two great people to follow are James Wedmore and Catherine Zenkina. James has a great mantra, which is F the how for now. This basically means don't worry about how, just get super clear on what you want and take the first steps towards it and see what happens. And Catherine also has a great tip on how to create the right energy for what you want. She says, I want you, but I don't need you. And I've been putting both of these things into practice and they've worked wonders for lowering stress levels and getting better results. So do check their stuff out. They both have podcasts and they're on Instagram too. Okay, so you might be wondering how this all connects to today's show. 
Well, when we commit to doing something like a wedding speech or a eulogy, we can attach enormous importance to it and put loads of pressure on ourselves. Yes, of course, it's important to do a good job. But if we pile the pressure on, our brains go into survival mode. That means all our creativity, logic and reasoning get shut down as all our energy is put into either getting ready to fight, run or freeze. And in this type of scenario, freeze is the most common response. So we need to be okay with whatever the outcome is, but of course intend to do the best job we can. And when it comes to eulogies, we certainly don't need additional pressure. It's hard enough to cope with grief that follows the loss of a friend or family member and add in the pressure of being responsible for the eulogy for the person you cared for and maybe some anxiety around public speaking and you've got this huge recipe for for overwhelm. And that's where today's show comes in. I'm hoping that if you find yourself in this situation, this show will relieve a little of the pressure. I'll be sharing some ideas and tips for putting the eulogy together and for delivering it so that you can honour their memory, keep your audience engaged and get through it without breaking down. Okay, let's crack on. So let's start with the purpose of a eulogy. Well, you may have your own view, but for me, this is a short speech that celebrates the life of a friend, relative or loved one, highlights some of their achievements and shares some positive or funny memories that illustrate the essence of who they were. In terms of who should deliver it, well, that can be anyone really, a friend, a colleague, a family member, or in some cases, the celebrant of the service. If you didn't know the person who has passed very well, then you'll definitely want to talk to others, but also consider your own encounters with them. Chances are that that will also speak to their character in some way. I've given two eulogies in my life for my maternal grandma and grandpa, and I thought I'd share how I set about writing them, and then I'll share my grandma's eulogy as an example of how it all might come together. Okay, so let's start with the content. The first thing I did was try and come up with a high-level chronology of their lives, list some of the big events and their hobbies and interests. And to gather this, I first wrote down what I knew and then I asked other members of my family, my mum, their siblings, my sisters, friends, etc. to check it through and see if there were any big events or pieces of the puzzle missing. The next step was to gather stories around these things or any others that came to mind that really showed their personality or some of the important relationships in their life. Here are some suggestions for the different types of story triggers you might explore. Personal anecdotes. These are personal stories that illustrate um, their unique quirks, their personality and sense of humour. And these stories can help paint a fuller picture of who they were as a person. Next, think about their achievements and accomplishments. Maybe you could highlight a few of those, whether they were personal, professional or academic. And this can give a taste of their strengths and talents. And then there's family stories. 
oh, my family's got loads of these. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not alone. And they can show the person's love for their family. Uh, and again, their personality. There's often funny ones in here. Um, make sure they are positive, though. Don't include any family feud stories unless they're all resolved now and everybody chuckles at them. Then um, after that, there's the stories that can show the person's kindness and generosity. These can also be funny and endearing. And then there's hobbies and interests. This can be a great source of what brought them joy. I know my family are going to have huge fun with this one when I head off onto my next adventure. Um, skateboarding, all sorts of stuff. I love to try different things and I'm, I've, I've made a right tit of myself on a number of occasions. Anyway, uh, then lastly, think about the challenges and adversity that they might have faced in their life. These stories can also be inspiring. Needless to say, when you are choosing the stories to tell, do make sure they are appropriate for the audience and respectful of the person's memory. And I think those are two key barometers that you need to keep in mind through pulling this whole thing together. Now, for additional help in finding personal stories, check out episode 33 of the podcast. It's all about finding stories and I've popped a link to that in the show notes. So once you've gathered all the material, how then do you select what actually to include? Well, this might be a good point in time to talk about the structure, as it might give you some ideas about how to narrow things down. Like with all talks, I would suggest starting with a lightning bolt. That's what I call the thing that uh, grabs the audience's attention because you've got to hook them in at the start, even though this is a eulogy. You want people paying attention to what you're going to say so that they can hear all those brilliant things that you're sharing about that person that you love or care for. So find something that's either the start or even the middle of a key story that you could return to later that maybe you could share a joke or a quote that they loved or even something that they used to say regularly. You could even use an item that they loved to lead people into the main part of the eulogy. There are so many different ways you can do this. But as I said, the aim is to grab attention and transition neatly into the next thing that you're going to talk about. Okay, so the structure then. Well, an easy and sensible way to structure the rest of the eulogy could be to move chronologically through their life. But you don't have to. This is your tribute and you can choose to do it any way you want. It might be that you just choose one theme and pull stories together around that. It also might depend on the occasion and the audience. If the eulogy is at a sports club for someone that used to uh, sort of be part of that organisation and you've been asked to say a few words about that person, then it's likely the stories you tell will be centred around that part of their life. If it's at their workplace, then the stories are likely to revolve around their job and work relationships. Now, a question that might be coming up for you at this point is, well, how long is, should this eulogy be? Well, the length can be influenced by a variety of factors, including the wishes of the person who's passed, their family, the specific circumstances of their passing, and the tone and content of the eulogy itself. But if I was going to give a general guideline, I'd say that a eulogy should typically be between five to ten minutes long. As I say, it's up to you. This is a unique thing um, and it's whatever works best in your set of circumstances. 
remember the eulogy isn't like a comprehensive biography of the person it's it's more like a sort of highlight reel you're focusing on the most important bits of their life and character and trying to convey a sense of their personality values and the impact that they had on the world and the people around them and ultimately the length doesn't matter as much as the quality and the impact if you put together a well-crafted eulogy in a few paragraphs that honors the life of the person and provides comfort to those who are grieving, then that will be perfect. You could even do a haiku. I mean, really, it's not about the length. It's about the intent and the impact. So we've talked about the content, the stories, the structure and the length. Let's talk about humour now, because you might have a question about that. Like, should you even use it? And I would say absolutely, if you want to, with some caveats. A joke or a funny story has got to be appropriate for the occasion, unless the person who's passed has specified otherwise. Um, And it's got to be done in a way that honours their memory and is respectful of the family, especially if the person that's passed is the butt of the joke. Think about it this way. If in life they would have been embarrassed about the story, best not to share it. However, if it was a story they shared themselves and they absolutely would have laughed at it, then go right ahead. If in doubt, run it past someone that they were close to. The other thing that I would say is use humour sparingly. Remember, it's not a stand-up comedy gig. And if you do want to use humour, then I'd suggest have a listen to episodes 19 uh, of the show, which is Humour 101 for Public Speaking, and episode 28, which is How to Make Your Content Funny Without Forcing the Gag both of which will definitely help you out with how to do this. And there are also links to those episodes in the show notes. Right, from here, the next thing I want to cover off is the delivery. And there are a few things to mention here. First of all, unlike most other talks where I'd recommend getting to the point where you don't use notes, with a eulogy, I feel that it would be fine to have them to refer to. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't prepare and rehearse thoroughly. And I'd recommend that you do that and become super familiar and comfortable with what you're planning to say. Not only will this give you an idea of how long it's going to be, but it's also because I want the notes or script to be just that prompt that you occasionally look at. As much as possible, you want to be connecting with your audience, making eye contact and being with them. If you have your head down, then this won't happen. Now, it's likely there's going to be a lectern, which you might be encouraged to stand behind, and that's fine. This is a different type of talk. And without as much opportunity to move and gesture, you are going to have to rely on your facial expressions and your voice to manage the audience's journey through the eulogy. But the good news is there are a number of tools that you can use with your voice to keep the audience engaged and lead their emotions through the speech. And these are pitch, pace, tone and volume. A pause can convey a few different things to your audience. A punchline is coming or a change of tone or theme is on the way. Or it can simply give your audience time to reflect on what you've said to pull their own memories forward. Pitch and pace can rev up the emotion in the story or slow it down. Tone and volume can also help you add colour and attitude to what you're sharing. 
And if you want to find out more about how to use your voice, then do check out episode 53, the four tools to help you avoid being a dull speaker. Now, there is another aspect to the delivery of a eulogy, and that is how to manage your own emotions. The chances are that you've also been affected by grief, but you don't want that grief to overpower you before you've delivered your speech. So how do you do this? Well, first of all, rehearsing the talk will build distance between you and the material, make it easier to deliver. The second thing will be to choose which stories to include. If there's one that's got a strong emotional pull for you, perhaps it might be better to leave that one out. And there are also some things that you can do in advance to help you compose yourself if you do get emotional. When I did the eulogies for my grandparents, I certainly had a moment or two where my voice wobbled. But I did two things at that point. I firstly paused to get myself back together. And secondly, I thought about the fact that I couldn't properly honour my grandma or grandpa if I was a blubbering wreck. I was there to do a job for them and I could always cry after. If you think that emotions will be a big issue for you, then I suggest having a listen to episode 239, How to Share an Emotional Story Without Losing Control. Okay, so I hope that's given you some tips on creating and delivering your eulogy. As promised, I will share the one I did for my grandma a few years ago, which may illustrate some of the things that I've shared and also give you some more ideas about how it all comes together. Okay, here we go. My grandma, Madeline, turned 90 only a few weeks ago and in her birthday card, I thanked her for giving me some of my most cherished memories. I don't think I'm alone in that and today I want to share some more memories of this wonderful woman. Madeline was born in London in 1922 to Charlotte and Alfred into a time of the Charleston and post-war optimism. Her father was a turner, a colourful family of 14 brothers and sisters, many of whom featured in Grandma's stories, and one of whom, Pauline, would become one of her best friends, along with her cousin Ethel. Grandma loved living in London, and never quite forgave her father for taking his family, Madeline, Leo, Bill and Mercedes, away from the city to Surbiton. Unfortunately, Madeline's father died unexpectedly when she was 12, which she always remembered as bringing both an opportunity to get her long hair cut and move back to her beloved London. The other beloved thing in Madeline's life and her memories was her mother. She was always in awe of the way her mum had brought up four children on her own. At 12, Madeline left school and although initially she went to work in a draper's where she was highly thought of, the call of the hospitality industry was strong. So following in her father's footsteps, she left to become a waitress. Some of you may have seen a photo of my grandma when she was younger, and it wouldn't surprise you to know that she did quite well earning tips. Still living at home, when she returned after her shift, her mum used to ask her to throw out her mouldies. Some of Madeline's fondest memories were from the years she was waiting in the West End. And if Grandma were here, she'd be chuffed that I said that correctly. <laughs> when the war broke out, 
Madeline was 18 and she had to leave to go into the fire service. And although she had to give up the job she loved because of it, the war held many of her fondest memories. Tea dances with American soldiers, nylons and the camaraderie of the shelters. When life returned to normal, Madeline went back to waiting at the Regent Palace and in 1946 a new chapter of her life was about to start. A young Spanish chef, Tony, recently arrived in England after fighting for the Allies in Africa, had taken a shine to her. He was advised not to ask her out as her uncle was the house manager, but my grandpa wasn't one to give up easily, and he asked her to the pictures. The day before she died, Grandma told me the story of that first date. Apparently, to impress her, Grandpa asked to have a cigarette, and not being a smoker, he created a cloud of smoke so big that it prevented Grandma from seeing the film. Six months later, they were married. In February 1948, Grandma gave birth to my mum. She'd been convinced she was carrying a boy and had planned to call him Joseph. Grandma told me that when Grandpa visited his wife and new baby in hospital, he asked, Madeline, you don't mind if we call the baby after my mother? She said, of course, Tony, and then asked what the name was. Only Casimira. <laughs> Grandma gave up work partly because of Casimira, but also because her adored mother moved in and Grandma became her carer, whether she needed it or not. Grandma fell pregnant again, but lost her twins at five months. This was a real shame because Madeline was at her best surrounded by children and animals, both of whom seemed to gravitate towards her. Partly because she was a wonderful carer, but also because food was never farther away. Madeline never left the house without a carrier bag full of sandwiches and or sweets, and this was a delight to my mum and her cousins, and me and my sisters Antonia and Lucy, and my cousin Jason, on the many trips we made with Grandma to the West End, the Commonwealth Institute, the Wimbledon Pantomime, the Circus, and our price records, to name but a few. Caring was what Grandma loved to do. Looking after diners, looking after her mum, Lottie, looking after Grandpa, and looking after waifs and strays. Over the years, Grandma has taken in budgies, chickens, rabbits, dogs, Lucky, Carly, a big Doberman pincher my dad, Tony, brought to her, and Honey and Cats, Beauty, and Jason's one. The other thing Madeline loved to do was talk to people. She struck up conversations with people wherever she went, and she always had a story to tell. Her father's piano, the Turners, Uncle Leo and his jokes, Auntie Mersh in the tube during the war, Uncle Bill and his post office exams. She had a memory and a story for every occasion, often accompanied by her cherished photographs, newspaper cuttings, swimming certificates, and other things gathered by a proud mother, great-grandma and auntie. Over the past couple of years, she'd been busy giving things away, but she ended up surrounded by photos of her family, especially her grandchildren and her nieces, nephews and their children. Grandma took care of everyone but herself, and shortly after my grandpa went into a care home, she had a nasty fall and broke her hip. This meant she couldn't go out on her own, and for a fiercely independent woman who adored going to the shops, this was heartbreaking. It was also fun for my mum, whose weekly food shopping trips with Grandma involved visiting a number of different supermarkets to get particular brands of sugar, biscuits, bread and so on, most of which Grandma gave away to us in her little packages. 
Madeline followed in Grandpa's footsteps and spent quite a bit of time in Athelstan House over the past summers, splitting her time between there and Fairham, where she stayed with her sister Mersh, which made her incredibly happy. She's also been a day visitor to Athelstan, going twice a week to spend time with her friends, especially her friend Lily. Madeline also followed in Grandpa's footsteps and made it to the grand old age of 90. And I'm so happy that just a few weeks ago, her family were with her to celebrate that achievement and show her how much she was loved. Each of us have different memories of Madeline. Many of us will have heard her stories, but I'm sure all of us have been touched in some way by her kindness and caring nature. I will miss my grandma so much, but I'm happy that she's been reunited with her mother, her husband and the rest of her family. We all love you, Madeline, and hope you're tea dancing in heaven. There you go. I hope that was helpful. Right, for your takeaways. The eulogy is a highlights reel. It can be chronological, but it can also be centred around a theme. Try to find stories and anecdotes to bring the events to life for people. And you can interview family and friends to find them and also think about your interactions with them. There is no absolute length a eulogy should be. It will depend on many factors, but if you want a rule of thumb, then between five and ten minutes. You can use humour, but make sure it's appropriate and respectful of their memory. You can also use notes, but try to become familiar with your talk so that you don't have your head down all the time, destroying the connection with your audience. Finally, think about how you're going to manage your emotions. I've put links to all the episodes I've mentioned in the show notes for you. And if you want to get more support on finding and crafting the stories for the eulogy, then do also check out my free Snackable Story Challenge course. You'll get training and resources to make these stories punchy, relevant and engaging. And you can find out more about that at saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. I hope you found that useful and it's given you some ideas, inspiration and food for thought. Thanks again for choosing the speaking club to listen to. And if you do get value, um, if you enjoy the show, consider leaving an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. It will take just a couple of minutes. Or you can leave it at the place you're listening to if it's a special podcast app or something. And if you're on LinkedIn or Instagram, do connect and say hi. Well, that's it from me. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Until next time, don't you forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share 
and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.